Schön würde. Rama Jaloka Dipati Sampati Katanjaliya Diwaramaya Chata Santi Dasata Parajaka Chatika Dese Tutamam Anukampimam Pajam Mutasa Bhagavato Rahato Samasambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Rahato Samasambutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Rahato Samasambutasa Buddhang Namang Sanghang Namasami What do you do in the long, spacious, empty gap between the in-breath and the out-breath? Gasp. I notice my mind gets very interested in this, but I lose the object. Is it okay to use words like knowing or connecting in the space? Yeah, sure, whatever works. Um, that's particularly... Uh, time where it's easy to lose the meditation object, you know, if you're focusing on the breathing, because then there's this pause between the in-breath and the out-breath, the out-breath and the in-breath. And even just that much uh, can be an opportunity for the, the mind to easily slip away. So, uh, if you can, especially when the breath is calmer, then those gaps become a bit longer, uh, more noticeable, so then uh, it's, it can be quite skillful to then uh, take a word or something and, and just place it in there. Something uh, which can help to keep the attention you know, focused and just waiting. If, uh, if mindfulness is really good, then you know, as you breathe in and then there's a, a pause and just wait. Just wait, you know, waiting for the exhale. Or once you've exhaled, then just just wait for the inhale to start. 
I notice in me there is often a tendency to try to make the breath into a particular rhythm, you know, to try to, to force it into, you know, a, a regular pattern, <clears throat> even if it's a calm, relaxed pattern. But when I uh, am able to really step out of that and just watch, absolutely, um, well, as independent as possible, as objective as possible, and just wait, just wait for the beginning of each in-breath, just curious, say, now what is this breath going to be like, without assuming it was going to be like the last breath, what's this breath going to be like? And then it will start on its own. Sometimes it'd be a more uh, deep breath, sometimes, maybe surprisingly, just a, a short, shallow breath. So, having a bit of curiosity in the breath helps you stay with it. You think, well, you know, every breath's the same. Every breath is not the same. Every breath is actually unique. And if we watch really carefully, you see, you know, no two breaths are alike. Having curiosity or interest in meditation object, whether it's the breath or anything else, is one of the keys to being able to stick with it. Because if we're interested in something, then it's easy to pay attention to it. If we find something boring, then naturally our mind's going to wander, wander off. Uh, it's going to be a, a challenge to, to kind of force uh, our attention to stay with something which is boring. But if it's actually something which you know, we're curious, no, where, when exactly is the breath going to start? What's it? You know, no preconceived notions, no expectations. Dearest Ajahn, <laughs> not just dear Ajahn, but the dearest Ajahn. Thanks. How many Ajahns do you know? One. <laughs> what experiences would help a practitioner to develop faith, belief in karma and the cycle of rebirth? Dying and being reborn? I remember when I first went to Thailand and, you know, I was really into the Dhamma, I was looking for a monastery to ordain it, but, you know, there were certain issues which were still, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, you know, there's all this talk of devas, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't know, rebirth, yeah, well, you know, kind of makes sense in a way, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't have any personal experience with it. Um, the the years that I was in Thailand uh, greatly expanded my um, I think a well-founded acceptance of what's possible in life I'm a bit skeptical you know I'm not prone to blind belief usually the opposite but I try to keep an open mind and when it came to rebirth it's like yeah, maybe, 
but you know doesn't really matter when it comes right down to it because you know this is what we have to work with practicing in the present moment but of course these are you know central Buddhist topics in a way too because um, the one of the very definitions of right understanding right view of the Noble Eightfold Path has to do with karma and rebirth and once I started reading the suttas in the Pali Canon, it's just all through it, you know. I mean, it's just, um, you know, there's no way you could say that, well, rebirth was an idea that was stuck on later, because it's just through all of the suttas. Still, you know, that's just the written word. The first year that I was a monk, I went and stayed with a teacher named Ajahn Biak. Ajahn Biak was one of Ajahn Chah's disciples. Oh, I think it's the wind. Those are just the devas coming to There <laughs> 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 the ghost. Well, I stayed with Ajahn Biak and um, Ajahn Biak at that time was not yet famous. He was still in his early 40s, maybe it was just about 40 years old is all. Um, but it, kind of in the inner circles, he was considered to be like really top-notch, one of the best, real up-and-coming star, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and he seemed, well, he had the reputation to have the ability to see beings in other realms, um, see his many of his own past lives, um, many, um, many, many special abilities that uh, come with uh, refinement of concentration or deep cultivation of mind. And again, you know, these things are like, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But in my... The times when I would meet with Ajahn Biak in private, you know, I would kind of say, come on, you can tell me, no one else is around, don't worry, you know, I won't tell anyone, you know, all this talk about Davis, is that really true or not, you know, I won't tell anyone, you know, I'm, my, my faith in the Dhamma won't be shaken, you know, well, not like I'm going to disrobe if you tell me the Davis don't really exist, it's all just cultural stuff. <clears throat> Like, come on, you can tell me. And I said, of course, devas exist. <laughs> and um, I said, well, what about rebirth and all that? And he said, yeah, I mean, um, it was clear that from his own personal experience, he could talk about um, rebirth being more as, as a fact. And, uh, and, I had a lot of trust in him. Again, you know, it's like, well, you're not really sure. But, you know, there was no, there was no reason why he would not tell me the truth. And he wasn't trying to convince me of anything. But, uh, so situations like that uh, helped to greatly increase my uh, sense of, you know, I guess sense of faith and or a sense of well maybe actually that is the way it works. 
and also just more and more reflection I guess my just through uh, my own personal understanding of the body and mind and how that works you know just because just because the physical matter the, the elements of the body at one stage go through a radical change called death there's still all of this mental momentum I mean we can see it when we sit down to meditate you know all of the uh, um, the stories that perpetuate our sense of self you know almost every time we open our eyes or uh, every time we, we look at something uh, or hear something we perpetuate that sense of self it's like uh, the feel when the feeling of I see something arises you know we open our eyes it's just shape color electromagnetic energy whatever out there but very quickly the perception I am seeing comes up or I am hearing right? very very quickly and then we you know can add many many layers on top of that I like what I'm seeing I don't like what I'm seeing I like I don't like what I'm hearing and who are they and don't they know who I really am you know can kind of perpetuate itself like that so uh, the mind is all of this momentum of perpetuating its own existence moment by moment and it just makes sense that as long as that is happening as a process even if the body uh, dies consciousness still like flowing like a river with all this momentum and it just makes sense that you know it's going to keep going it's fueled by the basic delusion centered around self which gives rise to liking disliking anger greed all of the rest but basically as as long as that uh, insight into self yet hasn't gone deep enough then there will be this constant reinforcing of the sense of self and so just seeing that you know in my own mind when I'm still alive it, can, it makes sense that you know that would continue on after death but in the end you just have to wait and see <laughs> or if your meditation gets good enough maybe you have a uh, some memories of past lives there's a lot of circumstantial evidence on the subject um, there's a number of people who have done research with young children uh, young children who up until the age of five will maybe be saying some strange things to the parents like um, you're not my mother you're not my father this is not my home my home is that, you know, and they give an address, and they give a village or a town, and, and etc. And uh, and they they can take all this information, and sometimes it's in a nearby place, sometimes it can be in a different country across on the other side of the world. And they take this information, and then they'll check, verify it, over and over again. You know, they found. Uh, um, situations where they, where they take the information from the child which seems to make no sense whatsoever 
Um, no way that they could have come up with this by themselves um, from their immediate surroundings. And let's say, they, and then they, they go to the address and they say, oh yeah, um, you know, two years ago our father passed away and um, he was like this. And, and uh, maybe the child says, you know, um, you know, my wife's name was so-and-so, or my family, my daughter's name was so-and-so, and they go and check, and the, and the names all correspond. So there's um, more and more um, a bit of scientific data around that. So that's interesting as well. Okay. Dearest Achan, again. <laughs> Thank you. Any tips for falling asleep mindfully? That's easy. I'm quite good at that, actually. Um, oh, mindfully. Sorry. <laughs> so, any tips for falling asleep? <clears throat> okay. Any tips for falling asleep mindfully? Um, I find that when I try to meditate before sleep, I always wake up from an in-between state suddenly, just as I'm falling into real sleep. Okay. Yeah. Now, generally, from the moment we wake up in the morning until the time we go to bed at night, we really make an effort to try to be mindful you know, with every activity. And then take that right up to the point, as far as you can, getting close to sleep. Okay. Um, the main way is just to stay with the with the breath. You know, as you're lying there, still paying attention to your breath coming in, going out, coming in, going out, and try to see if you can catch yourself. You know, just before you fall asleep. Mine's a very interesting thing. So even when it's just about to fall asleep, there can still be some mindfulness there. Another uh, good way to train the mind in situations like that is to make little aditanas or vows, which is like programming the mind. Um, for example, just as you're about to fall, fall asleep, you say, as soon as I wake up, as soon as I wake up, I want, may I be with my meditation object. May I be aware of my breath as soon as I wake up. And it's kind of like planting a seed in there, uh, which then, you know, with a bit of effort, when we wake up, can, can get that habit going right away. You can also do that with the dream state. For example, as you're, uh, as you're lying down, getting ready to sleep, uh, make a bit of a, a vow and say, uh, may I be, take this mindfulness right into the dream state, you know, as much as possible, right into the process of, of sleeping. And that, uh, it's definitely possible to do that. Even while sleeping, it's impossible to, to be aware to varying degrees. Again, Ajahn Biak told me that he used to experiment with this when he was a young monk. And he would, he would kind of practice with 
uh, experiment with various ways of approaching sleep just to see what effect it would have on his general practice. He found that if he wanted to, he could be aware continuously right throughout the whole night. Right? Com very clear mindfulness, and at the same time he was actually sleeping. And he found that um, that gave a lot of momentum to his practice. One thing that can happen is, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of effort in from the morning all throughout the day and at night, and then we go to sleep and we wake up in the morning and it's almost like um, our consciousness has gone back a couple of steps. You know, we have to kind of go through, kind of crank it up again, and then kind of pick up where we left off. But maintaining mindfulness right throughout the whole night, it was like that whole cycle wasn't broken. And uh, just for him, it just kept gaining more and more momentum. He also experimented with um, being able to not have any dreams at all. Just being able to, as soon as he went to sleep, just completely out. Uh, because dreaming can actually be very distracting as well. I mean, you know, we try to be very mindful through the, throughout the day, but then if we don't have mindfulness at night, our minds can just go wild. And, you know, that still affects, the, it still affects our mind, even if, um, even if we can't really be held responsible for it, it's still going to have an effect when we wake up. You know, we'll feel the, the, the emotional effects of the dreams or the scattered energy that comes from the dreams. So he would experiment with being able to have such a mastery over the mind that, you know, if he wanted to be mindful through the whole night or if he wanted to not have any dreams throughout the whole night, he was able to do that and would just f find out what was useful for practice, what helped his meditation. Dear Ajahn, my flight or fi fight response gets triggered by most non-family social situations. I realize this is probably the sign of an overactive ego, but it still is difficult to manage. What is a wise response to this social anxiety? Well, trust and metta, I would say, uh, uh, will both be very, very useful in this situation. I mean, you can't manufacture trust of, of strangers, but, you know, you can reflect mindfully. Uh, even if we may not know everyone here, we do have a pretty, pretty good trust that it's very safe. Everyone here is very safe, kind, well-meaning. Um, I don't. I think it's a very safe environment, a very safe group to to be in. 
so far. <laughs> um, so, I mean, ref reflecting in that way, I think it's realistic. It's like a realistic way of, of reflecting that, well, it probably is a very safe situation. In fact, uh, if there's going to be any you know, group or situation outside of our normal family situation where it can be very easy to develop trust amongst people and strangers, a meditation retreat like this is about as good as it gets. And then the practice of metta, loving-kindness, is just uh, so good in many ways for feeling at ease with other people. Because real metta is not based on whether we like someone or whether we don't like someone. But even if we don't like someone, or even if they don't like us, then we still have metta for them. And that's that's where metta becomes a really powerful force, is when it, it reaches that stage of unboundedness, or um, it's not dependent on conditions, conditions such as, you know, I'll have loving-kindness for them if they're kind to me first, or if I like them, or if they give me something in return, etc. But, uh, you know, loving kindness for for strangers, loving kindness for for everyone, and in a sense, that's probably one of the best ways to overcome any kind of fear, social fear, social anxiety. Because if you've just decided that you can have loving kindness for everyone, no matter what, then what can they do to harm you? Right? It's like this fantastic defense. Even if they're nasty to you, you say, well, I'm, you know, I have my refuge in loving-kindness, not your actions, or not your someone else's opinion, or not someone else's feeling of, you know, whether they're really trustworthy or not. So in that way, it just gives you, gives anyone who does that a real sense of fearlessness. So no matter what happens, you know, I I can feel at ease because you know, other people's opinions, emotions, feelings are totally out of our control. But we do at least have a certain illusion of control over our own development. And so uh, if we can develop metta to something close to that degree, it completely undercuts fear, you know, uh, together with uh, the fear that has to go with other people. Even um, fear of dangerous animals. One of the classic practices in the forest tradition would be to send people off into the forest, in the jungle, alone. And um, jungles in Thailand actually did have quite a few dangerous things living there or, you know, animals that were uh, easily capable of killing someone, whether they're elephants. I mean, elephants can be very temperamental and territorial, and all it takes is one stomp, and you're pancaked out. <laughs> or, um, 
I mean, there's all manner of poisonous snakes. Uh, even, um, snakes are very territorial as well, usually, and um, they usually won't strike, um, you know, unless confronted somehow, but it can be, um, you know, it's certainly possible if you're not mindful to step on a snake by accident in the dark. Uh, or sometimes there are certain types of snakes which are very aggressive, like king cobras. King cobras are different than cobras. They're a whole different species. Um, cobras are usually about this long. King cobras um, can be like as long as this whole room or longer into the kitchen. It can be, um, you know, they're huge. And then when they rise up, when they rise up with a hood, then they're usually as tall as, as we are. And then, uh, and they're very territorial and they tend to like to chase things out of their territory. So, that's a good one. Do you challenge your fear? Challenge your fear? You go into a jungle and, and they can travel like 30 miles per hour. <laughs> they go really quick. And so there's no way you can outrun it. Um, there's no way you can climb a tree because you climb up the trees. You can't escape that way. Um, you know, you can't fight it off because it's stronger than you and it rises up and it looks you in the eye. I mean, I've never had this happen to me. But, you know, that's, that's the general behavior is that what they'll do is they'll, they'll rise up and, and challenge whatever is in their territory. And uh, what you have to do is just, <clears throat> may you be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a really peaceful way to die. Yeah, well. You know, I died you, wishing you were happy. If you, if, if uh, you really develop a lot of metta, then even the fear of death starts to disappear. You know, so many of these fears, worries, insecurities, <laughs> anxieties, um, do are, are just sort of dissolved by regular uh, practice of loving kindness. There was one monk in Thailand, uh, Venerable Ajahn Ganha, and he had a reputation for being uh, just loaded with loving-kindness. He was very, very strong metta. And it happened one time where he was uh, sitting in meditation in a cave, and the King Cobra he came up to him, and uh, he reached out and petted it on the head, mm. stroking it. And, uh, yeah, well, for most people wouldn't do that. <laughs> but but uh, because he had so much metta, he just had this sense of he knew everything was going to be fine. He, he, it wasn't a foolish fear. I mean, uh, sorry, it wasn't a foolish fearlessness. <laughs> it was sort of a, a wise fearlessness of being able to, to know that, you know, if, if you really do have sincere intentions of loving-kindness for all the beings around us, then the animals are going to pick up on that. Animals in the jungle, very, very sensitive, probably more sensitive than most human beings, because they rely on being very attentive and aware. Their, their survival depends on it. And so they're very sensitive to 
emotions, whatever we project. If we project fear or aggression, they pick up on it just like that, and it triggers them into a state of anxiety. But with the wild animals, if you're practicing loving-kindness, then they pick up on it. So this is a a traditional way to go out into the jungle and overcome fear. And it's not too often that forest monks have gotten eaten. Um, Occasionally it it happens, but very rare. Usually it's irrational thoughts. You know, if there are tigers around, you know there are tigers around, then, um, I mean, the tigers generally don't want to mess with you don't want to mess with human beings, they'll stay clear. But something in the very lower part of our brain says, tiger, 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 danger, tiger. <laughs> and, and that's not necessarily very rational. It's like, oh, don't worry, I probably won't get eaten. Tiger, tiger. <laughs> Run. And uh, those types of fears, anxieties, worries, fear of death, not, uh, it's often not possible to really deal with it adequate, adequately on a, a level of thinking, trying to convince ourselves, um, um, you know, positive thinking, intellectual reflection. Yeah, yeah, it all makes sense, but I'm still afraid. Because it's happening on a much deeper level. It's a totally different level. So that's where meditation can go much deeper than other forms of um, ways of working with the mind. Something like metta practice. You know, it's not something we can just manufacture easily, or simply, or, or immediately, but, but through doing it regularly, you know, it becomes more and more sincere, more and more deep. It kind of sinks down into the deeper levels of the mind. And then, before we know it, suddenly a situation arises and we realize, oh, well, I don't have fear or anxiety arising in the situation. That's interesting. I used to be totally anxiety-ridden in this situation. Like speaking in public. (laughs) Speaking to strangers. First time you expected to give Dhamma talks can be a bit uh, conducive to worry. What am I going to say? Nothing's planned. What if I can't think of anything to say? What if they all think I'm foolish? But then, it's not just experience, but it's more a a sense of uh, really having a trust and and, a sense of metta for the people in the audience. It's feeling like, well, you know, I'm not worried that they're going to judge me. I am experiencing much restlessness in my 
meditation my meditation some things I don't recall the Buddha's words regarding restlessness it seems to be the effect of some subconscious cause please suggest ways to deal with the restlessness and or root out the cause to remember I don't get very restless anymore but I remember I remember I used to have a whole set of skillful means to deal with it feeling like uh, if it just seems like the, the body just can't sit still one thing that uh, can be very helpful is to like take a, a deep breath into the body and almost bring a sense of uh, for lack of a better word sort of bliss bliss energy or uh, kind of uh, relaxed relaxing energy into the body right? so just on the physical level you know, if you're feeling like it's hard to keep the body still feeling fidgety just take a Consciously take a deep breath and you know, feel all that relaxing energy come into the body. That in itself is settling. The real roots of restlessness, restlessness are in the mind. Sometimes it just takes a lot of patience. I mean, the bottom line for any obstacle in meditation is just to be very, very patient with it. You know, not give in to it. Just patient in the, in the, in the sense of you know, watching it vigilantly. And it will start to go. Notice the, uh, that restlessness is intrinsically based on wanting something. It's based on a desire. If we are perfectly content, then we wouldn't be restless. So what is it that we want? I mean, you could ask yourself, well, what is it that I want that I'm not getting right here, right now? And uh, sometimes the answer uh, comes up. You're able to pinpoint the answer. If we can pinpoint it, then then sometimes it's so silly and once it's conscious it's easy to let go of and that helps to, to calm down <coughs> bringing attention into the body is very good first satipatthana um, Especially if the restlessness is, is mental, like the mind just won't settle down, it's kind of jumping all over the place. Then just pull the energy down out of the head. 
and just focus the attention on pain, paying close attention to all the sensations in the body. You can do it systematically. Through the face, the neck, shoulders, down the back, into the torso, the arms, the legs, all the way down to the soles of the feet. Just bit by bit, paying attention to all the sensations in the body. That's very grounding. Um, kind of pulls the attention out of the shifting, shifting levels of the mind. And it's okay to adjust the breathing sometimes. You know, generally in anapanasati or mindfulness of breathing, uh, we just try to be a, uh, an objective obs- observer, more or less. It's impossibly possible to be completely objective, but um, generally we don't try to control the breath intentionally. But if you find that, say, rest- restlessness is becoming a real obstacle, then you can consciously take some deep, long breaths and just see what effect that has in calming and settling. Sorry for letting the door slam a few times. Trying to be mindful about it. Appreciate that. <laughs> it's good practice for everybody else. Dear Ajahn, what is stream entry? Well, stream entry is the English translation of sotapanna. Okay, next question. <laughs> <laughs> which, the, which is the term that the Buddha used for the first level of enlightenment. <clears throat> and each, each of these specific levels of enlightenment seem to correspond to particular ways that the mind lets go of things once and for all. So uh, the insights around stream entry have to do with um, the main one that has to do with is is letting go of the illusion of self. Once completely seen through that. And it doesn't mean that the mind is completely purified. It doesn't mean that um, there isn't some lingering greed, desire, anger, hatred, resentment. But the insight has gone deep enough to know that uh, there is no intrinsic abiding self in this body and mind that's behind it all. And because that, that perception of self is the thing which fuels the whole process, once that's cut, deeply enough, then um, it's just a matter of time for all of the karmic effects of all of the other things to do, just to gradually wear off. But uh, a person who 
has realized Dhamma to that level, then is no longer perpetuating it in major ways. So then they say, from that point on, seven more lives at most for the really slow ones. Hmm. <laughs> the image that comes to mind for me is like if you're, you know, if you're, you've got a map, you're hiking through the mountains, and the maps, you know, corresponding to the trails, you're heading toward this, this mountain that you want to climb. You've never actually seen the mountain, you see it on the map, and uh, you're kind of, you know, trekking a long way. And at some point, you turn a corner, and you can actually see the mountain in the distance, and for the first time you know that it exists. Right? It's not just a map, it's not just other hikers telling you that, oh yeah, I climbed that mountain. You, know, you actually see it for yourself, but you're not there yet. But you know that if you stay in this trail, you stay in this path, you, know, you can see that you know, it's going to go up and down and around in a ways, but it's going to go to the mountain. And there's just a feeling of, well, it's clear now. what the question was about? <laughs> Getting creative for pieces of paper. <laughs> so, yeah. Do mosquitoes ever bite your head? See, there's proof. I have a witness. Yes. <laughs> Do you put repellent on your scalp? It's getting a bit personal, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I use no repellent. I use no repellent. Let's see. And the final thing says, I'm dying to know. <laughs> Why? Just imagine meditating. I wonder if I can use that. I wonder. Does he, does he let the mosquitoes land on his head? <laughs> no, I. I just don't like deep. You know, I don't. I don't like deep. I don't like the chemicals. Uh, so I, I tend not to use it. Um, so yeah, the mosquitoes <laughs> land on my head and my hands. And, um, but you know, even though they're a bit annoying here, they're nothing compared to mosquitoes in Thailand. And so, you know, I was thinking of that today. The, the, Thailand has a few different types of mosquitoes, but the big ones are so painful. You know, you would if you're in Thailand, you just wish. I wish we had Minnesota mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative. Um, so I remember that, and I mean, I'm not. I. It's not like I go sit out in the forest and offer myself to the mosquitoes out of compassion. Come, drink your fill. <laughs> I have plenty of blood. May you be happy. 
you know, that's fine if you want to do that. But, um, but if I'm sitting in meditation and they land on me and I just try to be aware of the sensations and not make a big deal of it. Sometimes I'll move and brush them off, sometimes not, whatever. I don't, don't think about it much. <laughs> They've got to live too. I would appreciate some watermelon. No, I would appreciate some... <laughs> what does that say? I think my eyesight's going... Or people's handwriting is going, I'm not sure. I would like some instruction on when and how to engage in investigation of thoughts, mental formations, etc. One of the best ways to get a handle on thoughts in terms of investigation is to to uh, broaden the scope of mindfulness a bit. Right? So far, I've kind of been encouraging people to to refine consciousness, and if thoughts arise, just don't pay attention to them. You know, if they're kind of chattering in the background, not a problem, but just don't give them too much energy. You know, stay with the meditation object. But certainly, when it's time to uh, start developing more wisdom practice specifically, then we can learn a lot about ourselves through watching our thoughts. And, uh, and that entails a kind of a different way of approaching the mindfulness, approaching the scope of mindfulness, kind of open it up a bit. Notice that, I mean, just notice the thoughts that are arising. Notice maybe the feeling tone around them, notice our response to the thoughts. How do, we re- how do we respond when a particular thought arises? So much of life is habitual. Even when we try to be mindful, try to be aware, so much of what we do, so many of our reactions are just habitual. You know, this happens and then come very quickly. You know, we respond in this way and we do this and we think that. <clears throat> so having mindfulness that's quick enough to catch that. You know, something happens and then and just just saying, okay, well, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. What you know, what is the response here? Out of all <laughs> the whole ranges of responses, why is it that I immediately respond that way? And uh, that can be very instructive. It can be surprising. Often it's, often it's surprising when we really are able to get some distance say, between the thoughts and our manufactured sense of self and identification with the thoughts and step back a bit and just watch how this process is working. Yeah, it's often very surprising. And to see how how our minds are actually working, what we're actually doing to perpetuate all sorts of things in our life, maybe maybe things that we weren't even clearly aware of. It's like why is it that 
I keep falling into this pattern that well if we really look closely at our you know kind of bring it back to the source look, you know when a particular intention or thought arises then boom you know we naturally go to to this reaction we are very quickly habitually go to that reaction and so uh, yeah, it can be surprising sometimes because we can have a self-perception which maybe is not in line with what our thoughts and intentions are actually doing. So it takes a bit of integrity too to, to really look at our mind closely and uh, you know, a real deep sense of self-honesty. Really, really take a close look at it. But... You know, there's very fruitful um, possibilities for self-understanding, you know, or I guess probably more specifically non-self-understanding. Dear Ajahn, here's a joke for you. <laughs> Why don't Arhans vacuum in corners of rooms? Answer? Obvious. They have no attachments. <laughs> <laughs> and then it ends with, get it? <laughs> I get it. Thank you. <laughs> no attachments. It's amazing what comes up in the mind during meditation. <laughs> do, you, Ajahn, do monks at the monastery perform physical exercises like yoga or qigong? I mean, in the forest tradition. Thanks. We practice Kung Fu deep in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Standing on one toe, balanced on a log. Uh, usually, living in the forest uh, gives us a lot of exercise. You know, if we're really out uh, in the wild, then we, we tend to get quite a lot of exercise just with our daily lifestyle. Uh, my monastery in New Zealand is very hilly, and it's 144 acres, so you know it can be a good 15-20 minute walk from our hut to the main hall, up and down the hills, so we get plenty of exercise that way. In Thailand, just going out on alms round in the morning, you know, would be a good uh, hour and a half walk. Mm -hmm. So, get daily exercise that way. A number of the Western monks and nuns, probably the majority of the Western monks and nuns, will do some form of stretching or yoga. Um, before I went uh, to Thailand, I studied yoga a bit and was doing it regularly 
and uh, almost every day I'll do some stretches to try to take the pressure off of the knees. You know, there's certain stretches which will um, help to open up the hips, um, stretch out the, the ligaments, uh, particularly in the legs and the hips, to, to make sure that I don't uh, overtax my knees. Because if I'm doing a lot of sitting, then it's important not to overdo it. Um, because uh, once the knees are, knees are injured, um, our lifestyle becomes increasingly challenging because we're sitting on the floor a lot, sitting meditation a lot. Uh, so I do do regular stretches to, to try to uh, make sure that um, I don't uh, put too much strain on the knees. But um, there are some who do Qigong and when we do meditation workshops at our monastery in New Zealand, we have a Taiwanese bhikkhuni who comes and teaches Qigong as part of the meditation workshop. So that's a, a nice balance for people. You know, we, we do the sitting and walking, but then uh, in the afternoon she'll come and she'll lead everyone in the Qigong exercises. And generally, uh, those types of practices can be very uh, conducive to going hand in hand with meditation because they are uh, they can be healthy for the body but at the same time it's just like meditation in action you know um, like walking meditation is a bit of an extension from what we're doing while we're sitting you know and then uh, maybe yoga or other types of stretches are a bit more of an extension of being mindful in, with the body, mindful of every time that we stretch, mindful of, of the feelings in the body. And when, uh, when we regularly do kind of a meditation in motion, then it becomes easier and easier to translate that into daily life activities. Or, I mean, meditation is a daily life activity too, but more active daily life activities. Dear Ajahn, can you please talk about the effect of alcohol or drugs, maybe stress relief pills, on the meditation state and spirituality? Peace. <laughs> Read that out. Everyone kind of shifts their postures. And Whoa, this is going to be good. <laughs> Get into drugs and alcohol. It's exciting. Um, let's see. Before I was a monk, when I was getting interested in meditation, there was still a period of time where uh, you know, I would still drink alcohol still drink beer, and I guess natu naturally, without even trying, I just started to uh, like the state of clarity more than the state of non-clarity. Right? It wasn't like, you know, I was still in college and I just 
it wasn't I, w I just didn't want to drink so much anymore I just didn't want to be get so drunk so you know, I was just it was gradually kind of tailing off as I just started to appreciate um, the clarity is in many ways was more enjoyable but uh, even when I was you know, more seriously getting the meditation after the retreat, you know, I'd happily go out and have a cold beer. But, um, I would say alcohol definitely, you know, I started, when I really paid attention to it, you know, I could notice that it, it definitely had a, uh, uh, kind of a corrosive effect on mindfulness. All of the hard work that I put into meditation, so easily undone. Uh, even seemingly harmless amounts of alcohol, you know, certainly they affect our reaction time. You know, all of the studies they've done with uh, people being able to break in cars, um, they know that you know, even even small amounts of alcohol can can affect our mindfulness in that way. And so, with meditation, you know, we're working with with our reaction time. And when something arises, being mindful, being attentive, responding, reacting, or, you know, reacting with, with mindfulness, being right there. And so that's going to be compromised quite a bit, even with small amounts of alcohol. So, you know, I don't, I don't say alcohol is either good or bad, really, but, you know, it has certain effects, and it depends on what type of consciousness we want. It depends on what what we want to encourage in our consciousness. And uh, drugs, well, truth is, <laughs> you know, when I was in college, one of the things that really got me interested in meditation was <laughs> Before that, you know, I had a certain appreciation for um, spiritual things and meditation, but it was very, very theoretical, mostly based on the TV show Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, something with with LSD when I when I took it, you know, when I first took it, uh, I think it was about nineteen, and. It just kind of opened everything up in a completely different way, and uh, it. Um, the funny thing is, it actually seemed less delusional at the time. You see, um, it's a, probably a, probably a toss-up. You know, which was more deluded, my <laughs> my normal state of mind when I was nineteen, mm -hmm. you know, which is pretty heavily deluded already, or the state of mind under the influence of LSD. I said, wow, it's a delusion on delusion. But there, there did seem to be something which was definitely, um, you know, some learning involved with it, a way of seeing things I'd never seen before, a way of thinking about things that I hadn't seen before, that was, was not complete delusion, because even after the trip wore off, then it's like that, that certain understanding you know, would continue on. But, you know, it didn't take very long. Uh, 
before I wasn't learning anything new anymore from that. I was like, <laughs> 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 you know, it was still enjoyable, but it, um, uh, I wasn't really seeing anything new. Um, wasn't wasn't kind of going into any new territory. So around that time, I started to get the idea. Well, maybe if I want to take this further, I might have to do the traditional route actually learn how to meditate. And uh, so that kind of planted the seeds of meditation and interest in meditation in me at the time. And again, just, just naturally, without, without any you know, ideas of I should do this or I shouldn't do that, I just stopped being interested in whatever, whatever kind of recreational drugs were around at the time. Uh, not because I thought they were bad or evil necessarily, because in those days we didn't really have very addictive drugs. <clears throat> no, there wasn't. We didn't really have uh, a lot of the crack, cocaine, or those types of things around. Certainly, no methamphetamines. So, uh, you know, the drugs were, you know, mostly just like college kids you know, do, you know, for fun. But then it wears off, and more or less you come back to the uh, same state of consciousness that you were um, before, unless you've taken too much LSD, and then uh, the neurons never really recover. <laughs> but at a certain stage, I think it's, it's just natural that the natural, the natural clarity of the mind becomes more enjoyable becomes more important you know if, we, if we're really interested in understanding the life or understanding our body and mind then we need to have heightened consciousness for that and there's no it's really there's no synthetic substitute for mindfulness mindfulness concentration um, and doing things the traditional way With other forms of um, medicine, for example, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. If someone is experiencing so much, say, effects from um, anxiety or bipolar condition, um, would taking that be a good taking um, the uh, the appropriate drugs? Would that is that a help or a hindrance? And again, it, you just have to watch the effect on the mind. I think there are some drugs which have a dulling effect, which aren't very useful, but others probably bring a, can bring a person back into a state where they can actually start meditating. You know, Maybe before that, the mind's just so out of control that it's not really, it's not really an option. It's like, can't even get a handle on it. It's like, okay, well, maybe there's room for a certain type of medication which you know, brings it into a certain realm where we can actually start with the work of, of having enough mindfulness. The mind's not so out of control. The mind's just normally out of control. And uh, you know, we can actually start to get down to work. But, you know, 
tea and caffeine is a drug. I partake of that. Dirajan. So we know it is skillful to be patient. But how do we be patient? I'll tell you in five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Best, best way to develop patience is to be surrounded by irritating people. (laughs) If we are always surrounded by really nice, kind, considerate, wonderful, sensitive people, oh, we don't have to be patient because everyone's wonderful. But when we're faced with people who are a bit irritating, at least in our own perception, I mean, no one's irritating or not irritating, but in our own perception of them, we perceive them as irritating them. That's a wonderful opportunity for developing the uh, wholesome quality of patience. Mosquitoes can be wonderful teachers for patience. The rain, weather that we don't like, any situation which maybe not what we would wish for. Say, well, I could either get irritated or I could be patient. Might as well be patient. You know? Because um, in terms of foundational qualities for enlightenment, kantibharmi, or patient, is just so important. I mean, the Buddha said, uh, uh, kanti is the, the supreme burner-upper of defilements is is the the quality which more than anything else is able to uh, just one by one you know burn up defilements as they arise for example you know sitting in meditation you know the same stuff can come up hour after hour day after day year after year And even if we're practicing correctly, it's just maybe a lot of, you know, there's a lot of karma we've made in the past, and it's going to take a while to work through it all. And the only way to do that is to really be patient. Patient with, you know, just the repetition of it. Here it is again. Okay. Here it is again. <laughs> I let go. Here it is again. I let go. But each time that we're able to respond with patience, in situations like that, then uh, it is it's kind of finished with. Right? It may it may come up again, but you know, moment by moment, it's kind of finished with. And also, it's a different way of looking at everything around us, all the things which are not what we wish for, all the people that maybe are not giving us what we want all the time, and then we can see them as teachers of patience. And it's, it's just a good way of 
of looking at, at life. Because so much of what we really experience or what we, what we think is reality is just how we project out, how we perceive things. So if we can catch ourselves and remember, ah, he's not an irritating jerk, he's a teacher of patience. Thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, not cynically. Thanks for being my teacher. May you be reborn in heaven. <laughs> no, but you know, sincerely, saying, <laughs> uh, right, okay. Uh, this is good opportunity for developing patience. I just got news that our caretaker in New Zealand suddenly is leaving without any discussion, any reason why. And, and uh, we, uh, when I get back, there's all this work that had planned to be done that we need, we needed him there for. He's supposed to be there for six months. You know, there's all these really good reasons why I should be irritated. <clears throat> um, completely irresponsible, you know, etc. And. Uh, But I also recognize that, okay, well, this is an opportunity for developing patience. Can I be, it's easy to get irritated, easy to worry, but can I just say, all right, thank you. Thank you, Bruno. You are my teacher in patience. Thank you for, thank you for being so unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, so much of, of life, our experience of life, really is about how we perceive things. So, you're going to play with that. And it's no more real or unreal than anything else that we project. So, if we can, per if we can develop our perceptions in a way which are uh, more conducive to learning, joy, developing something positive, um, creating, creating a positive not creating a positive spin, like positive thinking, but um, turning it into a situation where some benefit is derived. And so then even kind of so-called bad situations, you can be looked at from a different angle and say, okay, well, at least I can develop patience. So that's the wonderful thing about life, is that it it's always giving us opportunities to develop patience. Never stops. <laughs> and, the, and those kind of, you know, that patience, you know, really, really comes in handy. Uh, if, we, if we have developed strong patient endurance, then it's like, okay, whatever life gives us, I can take it. This is the last one. Dear Ajahn Chenico, we do love you. I'm not making this up, it actually says that. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Thanks. I'll meditate on that. By the way, I didn't write that. <laughs> I, mean, I just want to clarify, I didn't actually write that. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.